Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching and the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of the God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and those of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and they seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say, This Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The word of the Lord. When you're making your way through the book of Acts, one way you might read it is to read it as a series of hero stories, that the church's story is moved forward by one outstanding individual after another. And while there is that place, I don't think that is the best way to read the book of Acts. The book of Acts is, Luke is more intentionally giving you a story of the creation of the church and why the creation of the church is absolutely necessary for moving the story of the kingdom forward. In fact, the work, the ministry, and the trajectory of what Jesus is doing in his death and resurrection and what it means for the world cannot possibly be carried forward simply by individuals, but must be carried forward by a community. I would go so far as to say that to negotiate the importance of the church is to negotiate Christ himself. Now, why would I say something so strong? Well, I think our passage leads us uh, to that conclusion, and let me show you how. First of all, notice that even as we hear the stories of the apostles and the seven who are appointed and Stephen, in verse 7, Luke is continually, this is one of a number, reminding us as he writes, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Even priests are coming to believe. And as a result of this rapidly growing community, 
Changes have to happen. In fact, Acts 6, in, in one sense, is a story of growth pains, which should give us some comfort as we go through our own pains of growing and exceeding the boundaries of the building. It's not easy, and it wasn't easy for the church in Acts 6. And you see two transitions. One, the apostles extending their authority to a new group of men who will participate in ministry. And you also see authority being given to Stephen, not simply as someone who waits on tables, but someone who acts prophetically to extend the kingdom of God. I started a story today in the children's lesson, a story of Loma Gundi Presbyterian Church in Rhodesia. And I started to tell you about Paul Nishengwe, but there's another person uh, that we need to talk about to complete that story, and his name is Jim Steele. Jim Steele was of solid Scottish descent. Uh, his grandfather had immigrated from Scotland as Great Britain colonized Rhodesia. The promise of free or cheap land and the opportunity to make your fortune in a foreign land was attractive enough to his grandfather that he went there and resettled his family on 3,700 acres where they became tobacco farmers. And uh, Jim is the third generation taking over the farm from his own father. And he was 27 years old in 1964. And Steele was, he was a farmer. He was a man of the land. He was very simple. He thought, what you do is who you are, and I am what you see. Until one day he had to rethink that conclusion about himself and his own heart. He, was, he had prepared the barn to dry the tobacco leaves at the end of the harvest, which means you have to go to great lengths to make the barn essentially airtight, and you have to keep a stove running 24 hours at a certain temperature to dry out the tobacco leaves. And during the night, one of the Shona tribesmen would be employed to monitor the furnace and keep the temperature at a certain, uh, certain degree. Well, Jim, every morning, the first thing he would do would be to go and check on the tobacco leaves. And it was getting colder and colder, and he would walk into the barn, and he knew that the barn was not at the temperature it was supposed to be. But the person working in the barn would say, no, no, look at the thermostat. It's right where it needs to be. And indeed, he'd look at the thermostat, and it read correctly. Well, this went on for about two weeks. And Jim knew that what the person was doing was he would hear the truck coming down the road, and he would wake up. And he would run and grab the thermostat and place it on the furnace until it rose to the right temperature, and he would hang it back on the wall. Well, one morning, Jim got up. He could see his breath. It was very cold. He went down to the barn, and he could see his breath in the barn. Now, this is putting the entire tobacco harvest in jeopardy, but he lost it. He grabbed the boy, and he picked him up, and he held open the fire, and he pressed his face into the fire. And he said, boy, does that feel hot enough to you for this barn? And boy, to prevent his head from going in the fire, put his hands on the furnace, and Jim could hear the searing of his hands as he pressed them against the furnace. And Jim says, he can't explain to you what happened next. That a great force came down and said, the closest thing I can liken to it, it to is a great wind. And the next thing I knew, I was on the ground and the boy was on the ground. And I knew that something much bigger than myself had, had been present in the setting. And at that moment too, Jim said, I don't, I don't know that I know who I am. I don't know that I really know my heart. And so Jim had always been in his Presbyterian church, but he started to pursue God in a more serious way. And in 1970, the, the Spirit reached out to him while he was in church and came upon him, and he was so filled 
with a sense that he desperately needed to repent of his pride. Then he went down and knelt at the end of the service and cried out to God, please forgive me for my pride. I know that you call me to surrender all. Now Jim had no idea what that meant at that point, but he knew that God was calling him in that direction. All while this is happening, uh, Jim Steele's life and the life of Rhodesia was changing dramatically. It was in 1965 that Rhodesia declared its independence from Great Britain, saying we will no longer be a colony, but we'll be an independent country. And immediately after that, almost, the nation broke into a revolution. If it's going to be independent, who's going to rule and be in authority? The last 15 years, 30,000 blacks would die, 1,500 whites would die. It wasn't until 1980, with Bob Marley singing songs of peace in a stadium, that Rhodesia became Zimbabwe, and Robert Mugabe took the lead of the country. And Mugabe actually, we may forget, for the first 10 years or so, was a decent leader before he became insane and despotic and would corrupt the country and do terrible harm. But as soon as Zimbabwe was created, Jim Steele knew this. He was going to lose his land. This was the story of all colonies in Africa. What would happen first is that settlers would be allowed to reclaim the land so that they would simply move in and claim a patch of his 3,700 acres and start farming it. The next thing that happens is the military comes in. The military comes in and says, trumps up some kind of conflict between the white landowner and the settlers, arrests the white landowner, and then typically someone in the military would come in and claim most, if not all, of the land and have the settlers work under his authority. This is the way the, uh, the end of colonialism was working in this part of the world. And so in the midst of this transition, the land reverting back to black ownership, Jim Steele would, knew that he would be losing everything. And so he was faced with the question of, well, what does it look like in the midst of this to move forward? What does it mean in the midst of of losing my livelihood and everything my family's been about for 300 years and recognizing that I have this because I took it from the indigenous people who were here before, how do you act like a believer in this? How do you surrender and honor God in the midst of this? It's a big question with which he would have to wrestle and for which the church would become essential. And the first way I want you to see that the church is essential in our passage is that the church is very much a family. The church is bound together by the blood of Jesus Christ, which trumps any notion of biological blood. We've noted that the church is is growing, but here we see, in perhaps the first way significantly in the book of Acts, real growth problems, a challenge that occurs not from the outside pressing in on the church or persecuting the church, but a problem that arises from inside the church itself. So we need to understand the nature of this problem. You see it in verse 1. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Well, what in the world is this about? Okay. We're talking about widows. We're talking about two different sets of widows. We're talking about the daily distribution of food because the widows are poor and they cannot feed themselves. Right? They're, at the, they're the poorest of the poor, orphans and widows in the ancient world. Now, what's the distinction between a Hebrew widow and a Hellenist widow? A Hellenist widow is a Greek-speaking Jewish widow. It gets a little bit confusing, but if you hang in there, 
Now, why, why are they Greek-speaking? Well, because they didn't live for most of their life in Jerusalem. Now, they might be there because they've hung out since Pentecost, or they might be there because it was pretty somewhat popular in your last years to move back to Jerusalem, even if, say, you were part of the synagogue in Corinth, you wanted to die in the Holy Land. So you might move back. For whatever reason you came there, you're Greek-speaking. And that's what a Hellenist is. It doesn't mean it's a Gentile. right? That's the important distinction here. Everybody here is Jewish, but these are Greek-speaking Jewish widows. The Hebrews, on the other hand, are the Hebrew are the uh, Jewish people who actually live and dwell in Jerusalem. Now, the reason it's confusing is there, no one spoke Hebrew at this time. Everybody spoke Aramaic. So they're actually Aramaic-speaking, but they're referred to as Hebrews ethnically. So now, we all together? I feel like that may have been more confusing than it was worth, Okay. Two groups of widows, everybody's Jewish, everybody's Jewish and has decided to follow Jesus as Messiah. One group, the outsiders kind of speak Greek, the insiders speak Aramaic and live in Jerusalem. The Greek speakers are in the most jeopardy because they probably didn't have any family in Jerusalem, not having lived there for any period of time. And so this complaint, which is a serious word, the word there for complaint is the same word that describes the Israels, when they grumble against Moses, right? The, the Hellenists are angry. They're very upset because food is getting handed out first to all the Hebrew widows, and there's nothing left for the Hellenist widows. You're ignoring the needs of my, my people, right? The people that I identify with uh, within this group. So how are we going to handle something like this? Well, if you think about it for a moment, you can handle it all sorts of ways. The apostles might exercise control and say, well, you know what, Hellenists, frankly, you're second class. You get what you get. Or they might have said, well, we're the apostles. We have to handle everything. And we're the really special leaders here, so we're going to try to divide bread and multiply it like Jesus did. Or if they were like the church today, they would just divide. Right? You'd get... You'd get a Greek-speaking congregation and an uh, Aramaic-speaking congregation, and they'd move down, they'd set up shop a block away and would minister to different congregations. That's not what happens in any of uh, these regards. What does happen? The entire church is called. Talk about the humility of the leadership of the apostles. We don't have the answer here. We're going to call everyone and hear from everyone in order to come to a proper decision in which everyone is honored. And the decision they come to is radical in every sense of the word. You look at verses 5 and 6. They know that they, the apostles need additional help. And in verse 5 and 6, they appoint seven men, Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas. Now, do those names sound funny to you? They should, at least in the sense, those aren't Old Testament names. They're not right, Aramaic or Hebrew in the sense of the Hebrews that are being designated in our passage. They're all Greek names. Now, the significance of that is this. They've appointed men from the Hellenist camp to oversee the distribution of the food. In other words... The apostles are are recognizing as the churches, we've really erred here. 
By allowing Hebrews to call all the shots, the Hellenists have been neglected, so let's make sure that the Hellenists have positions in leadership so that there's an equitable distribution of food. It's a remarkable move in terms of laying down power, laying down control, and inviting those who would have been considered on the outskirts of the, uh, the new church, right, the Greek speakers, to participate in leadership. But what a beautiful testimony. These people who, by any other standard, ethnically, culturally, socioeconomically, these people who would have been considered different from us, we're all unified by the blood of Jesus. And we're going to care for them to the same extent that we would care for our own. It's a beautiful demonstration of how the gospel is actually affecting the community. This is the kind of thing that Jim Steele would have to wrestle with. As the settlers are coming to take his land, he remembers when he, every morning he would go out on his balcony and have tea. He remembers when he went out with his tea and he saw the first grass hut go up on his property. And then the second and the third. And he'd say, should I be angry? Should I fight? Should I just retreat? You know, what? I'm a man of this land and this was my land. What should I do? And so he uh, decided, as he talked with his pastor and and thought about it, that he, before he decided what he should do, he should get to know the people. It dawned on him that even though he had lived there his entire life, he didn't actually know any Shona personally, any tribes person. So he started to walk out on his property. And he started to walk up to the Shonas and say, hey, I'm Jim Steele. And the question he kept coming back to is, uh, I'd like to know what you want. And as he asked that question over and over, he said he got the same answer. The Shona said, we want to live. That's it. We just want to live. We don't want to feel like every day may be our last day because of AIDS or lack of nutrition or lack of education. We simply want to live. And Jim Steele, it kind of hit him like a ton of bricks. And he said, I actually can help with that. And so Steele started to leverage all of his resources to move in the direction of helping the Shonas to live. He provided medicine to AIDS victims. He provided loans to farmers. He gave them personal training, having been a lifelong farmer himself and sharing his knowledge. He dedicated old barns to schools on his own property and essentially gave himself. But he decided that it was not enough, even as he was uh, meeting with these Shonas and trying to help in significant ways and He continued to go to his church and to dialogue about the issue. You know, this is a white Presbyterian church of Scottish descent in the middle of Rhodesia becomes Zimbabwe. And they were without a pastor because no no white pastor wanted to come and take the church and live under these conditions. And so they had a black interim pastor come in and cover the basis for a while. And that black pastor happened to be Paul Nishangwe, right, who had become ultimately a pastor. And uh, Steele ultimately decided, uh, he was talking with his people, he said, you know, to really move forward, to really be the people of God in this context where we find ourselves, we need to call Paul Nishangwe to be our pastor. We need a black pastor. And the people in his church thought he was crazy. He says, this is a white church, you're going to call a black pastor? And Jim Steele said, this isn't a white church, this is God's church. And Paul Nishangwe is the best man 
uh, to lead our church in the midst of the conditions in which we find ourselves. And again, what a stunning picture of Jim Steele not basing his decisions on his ancestry or on his human blood, but realizing that he's unified to his Christian brothers and sisters and to present the church in a way that is not only true, but also inviting to the people as Zimbabwe moves forward. It's got to be a church that represents both white and black interests. I found that so challenging. We've got white and black and Mexican and in, in Rockwall County, right? And you can't find any of us worshiping together on a Sunday. We think, oh, we don't like the same music. We don't like to read the same authors or think about the same things. It's just easier if we all separate. And yeah, there's no easy answer. And I don't pretend to have any silver bullet to the division that occurs within the church today. But I'm guessing that our divisions are less than the divisions between the Shona tribes people and the Scottish landowners in Zimbabwe. And so it made me think, well, maybe, maybe we need to work a little bit harder or think a little bit more deeply about reaching out. Now, this requires for the church leadership, and I don't just mean the, um, the significance of leaders in and of themselves, but what I want you to see here is that the church is growing, and the apostles aren't saying this is going to be a story about apostles as heroes, This is going to be a story about an institution that is created by God to carry the kingdom forward, and that kingdom will require leadership. If this was going to be a story of heroes, we wouldn't need leadership because there wouldn't be anything to be led. The heroes would do it all. But that's not the case. The church is being born in a new fashion, and it is the church that carries the story of the kingdom uh, forward. Now, a note about this transition of leadership. Look, it's important that you look with me at verses 2 and 4, two of the most abused verses in the New Testament, first and foremost by pastors. Verse 2, the apostles say it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, I've heard uh, ministers uh, and uh, people in the church, and I've heard sermons say, Yes, the the pastor must be set aside to study the word and to pray. He can't do anything else. Um, And I've heard this particularly to people who really don't want to do anything else and don't want to get their hands dirty. And I think that reading is nonsense. And you have to think of it in this light. You know, how would you reconcile something like John 13? In John 13, Jesus strips down to to his undergarment And he washes the feet of the apostles. And he says, uh, this I've done as an example to you that you would go and do the same. Now, washing feet in the ancient world was a much dirtier task than serving tables. In fact, it's kind of the bottom rung of the social task list. So if you said suddenly the apostles were deciding that they were no longer going to actually serve others and wash the feet of others, we'd have to call that an error. We'd have to call that deviating from Jesus' intention. Now, I'm not trying, it's important that ministers and, and preachers of the word, right, are devoted to prayer and studying the word. But they also have to be devoted to washing the feet of those they lead. There's no two ways about it. And so be careful how you read this passage. More than anything, I think what you see is a distribution of labor. I think that the idea here is that the apostles are saying, okay, we're overwhelmed. 
We, every chapter we jump into in Acts, the church has grown by another thousand. They're overwhelmed by the needs of the poor, and the apostles are saying, we can't possibly handle everything. We need to appoint someone to make sure that justice is administered in the church. And as they do so, notice the qualifications in verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. We see the importance of good leadership. And what is the most important uh, qualification for leadership here and anywhere else that you might turn in Scripture where there are qualifications for leadership listed? Is it that they've made a lot of money or that they're administratively gifted or technologically savvy? It's never, never put forward as the qualifications in Scripture. Over and over again, it's the godliness of the individual. As you think about the leaders that you nominate year to year to serve as leaders in this church, over and over again, your first and last question should be, is this individual godly? Are they righteous and will they lead us in godliness? When we start negotiating on the godliness of our leaders, it is the beginning of the end of Rockwall Prez. And the church in, uh, in Zimbabwe now, Loma Gandhi Presbyterian Church, knew this. And as they debated calling Paul Nashangwe, this angry youth that had grown up, they had to look at him and say, is this really a person of godliness? And they were amazed at what they saw in this individual. As someone who had came out of high school and he had converted given the story that we had in the children's lesson, and he had appealed to pursue ministry coming out of high school. And one of the people who was overseeing his training was, must have been a great trainer because the note on his paper said, uh, uh, Paul Nishangwe mistakes his insatiable rage for a call to the ministry. And so they told him no and sent him, he said, you have to go do undergrad, you're not ready. And so he went and did undergrad and started to work through some of that rage. He met the woman who would become his wife. And uh, as a result, uh, Paul Nishangwe is hating women. He only ever knew his wife. Now, the significance of that in Zimbabwe during the time that he's growing up means that he didn't uh, suffer from AIDS. And Paul would lose one brother, and then a sister, and then another brother, and then two more sisters to AIDS. Now, that's no virtue of, you know, Paul's making that decision out of anger, not out of righteousness, right, in terms of only knowing his wife. The point is, what Paul ends up doing is caring for nine nephews and nieces on a pastor's salary, all the children of his siblings, right, and living in poverty, but making sure that they're cared for. And so the people took note of that. They took note of the way that even though he was really frustrated that he was sent to undergrad, he went and did it. And he listened to the people and said, I'll follow this, their instruction and try to grow in righteousness. And he ultimately came out of ministry as someone who spoke incredibly boldly uh, before the governing officials. There's one occasion where he's invited to speak for a funeral, and it was political propaganda. And the political official at the ceremony at the funeral said, you know, I want you to speak first. And he goes, no, I will speak last. God will have the last word today. And that was the kind of thing that could get you killed in Zimbabwe at the time. But fearlessly, he sought to follow God and to honor him in the midst of that leadership. It reminds us that Christianity and the church is not simply going to be a, a story of individuals. Right? You see the apostles saying, this isn't going to be our story. We're going to hand off authority to these seven. We're going to lay our hands on them 
and share it with them. And this is going to become a more complex phenomenon, which is the reason that good leadership is so important that we see both in Paul and in these seven, and particularly in Stephen. Does he not stand out as an outstanding leader? Now, we could say much about Stephen, but the time is late. And so I will summarize for you the notion, this notion that what Luke is doing in this description of Stephen is trying to communicate to you that Stephen is telling the story of Jesus. Um, Stephen receives virtually the exact same accusations that Jesus receives. Stephen is charged three times, as Jesus will be charged three times. Uh, Luke is bringing out a prophetic announcement of Jesus in, in 21, where he says that uh, he will provide those, he will give the words of those to speak, and, and Stephen is living that out. And in verse 15, you get Stephen's face shining, right? Hearkening back to Moses, right? This is a prophet who has been raised up and upon whom the Spirit uh, exists. And Stephen, right, for being faithful, for proclaiming the message of Jesus, what will happen? He will be arrested. He's falsely accused. And you know the story that we'll, we'll go and consider next week is that Stephen will become the first martyr of the church, it's a story of those who are called to follow Jesus are called to tell his story, and to tell Jesus' story means a surrendering. Remember back in 1970 where, when Jim Steele was in church and he felt that God had impressed upon him, you must surrender all. That was the calling upon Steele's life, and indeed he surrendered much. Not only in giving away most of his estate to support the Shona people, but also in creating a biracial church that would increasingly come under persecution for what it represented in society. And indeed, what Jim would have to surrender would become even more significant. We see both in the, in the life of Stephen and in the life of Jim Steele and in the Paul, story of Paul Nishantengwe, a willingness to surrender rights and privileges, a willingness to surrender time and energy. Indeed, a willingness to surrender one's life. Much more is going to be required of Jim Steele and Paul Nishangwe, and we have to pick those stories up next week. But what I hope you walk away with this morning is, a, is an increased value of the need, the necessity of the church. Right? That the, the kingdom of God is not moving forward simply by a, by a story of various heroes who pop up from time to time but it's being carried forward by a family that is created that cares for one another at expense to oneself and that realizes that in that very act, they tell faithfully the story of Jesus. As we might learn from Stephen and learn from Jim Steele, as you come to the church, are you willing to surrender for the sake of the bride? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning. And we thank you that you have not only made us your bride, but you make us beautiful. I thank you for the ways in which I have seen your face and the care and concern and compassion and service of the people who are gathered here. And pray that we would all increasingly value the, the nature and the quality of the bride that you have called us to be. Would you help us to surrender, to make your church beautiful? not just to make it beautiful, but to make it effective. Uh, your story does not go, up, go out strictly 
through remarkable heroes doing unbelievable things. It goes forward by the, the regular faithfulness of those who care for the Hellenist widows, the regular faithfulness of people like Jim Steele and Paul Nishangwe. And would you help it to go forward through our faithfulness? We ask that you would equip us this morning in this very task as we come to your table. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.